Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. The Knot is where you'll find vendors for every wedding. Floral to fawn over, cakes you almost don't want to cut. Oh, it looks so good. DJs to drop it to. Venues worthy of your grid. Photographers that make every hour golden hour. Really, vendors for any vibe. With the help of fresh reviews and a few useful filters, you can find your vendors faster than you can say, I do. The Knot Vendor Marketplace. Find vendors for every wedding at thenot.com slash audio. Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On the show this week, in the countdown to Christmas, this pointless Prime Minister draws a blankety blank. Is Johnson now the weakest link and will MPs call his bluff? As the stories of corruption and democracy grow, we meet Jolien Morm of the Good Law Project, a constant thorn of democracy on this government's side. And tis the season to be measured, can too much positivity be toxic? Or is performative cynicism the pits? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. Our panellists are festooned with tinsel and raring to go, so let's meet them. First up, welcome back to author and Westminster journalist Marie Leconte. Welcome, Marie. Hello. Marie, by sheer devilish coincidence, Liz Truss in the last few days has been stepping up her efforts to look prime ministerial. What do you make of her? She's, I I would say she's quite an interesting character because she's, so so weirdly, I think there's been a small part of the Conservative Party that's absolutely loved her for a weirdly long time. So I remember actually going for dinner with an MP like in the Theresa May years and him saying, you know, I really, really hope Listras becomes the next leader after Theresa May. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, that man is insane. Um, but but actually, you know, <laughs> he's kind of proved himself right in that, you know, it's not just him. It's actually quite a lot of people are starting to turn to her and say, actually, you know, it, it is that our next leader. So, yes, no, she's definitely the front runner, I think, in the whenever it will happen sort of like upcoming Tory leadership contest. I mean, she'd be an interesting choice. Um Marx wrote that when politicians are unable to make sense of their own age, they borrow costumes and language from the past. And as a result, historic personages always appear twice, the first time in the context of tragedy, the second in a farce. Having experienced the disaster of Johnson's attempt at cosplaying Churchill, why does the Tory party appear intent to go for a Thatcher tribute act as the solution? Well, so I think that the one thing that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson have in common is that they're both sort of like very naturally positive and optimistic people. I mean, that's probably, you know, this is very much sort of like armchair um, psychology here. But I wonder if it's the case that because Britain has not been in a very good place for quite a long time now, there's this kind of yearning on the Conservative benches and elsewhere to go for people who are just like, everything is fine. Everything is wonderful. (laughs) Everything will be okay. I'm having a tremendous time. If you join me, you too will be able to have a tremendous time. And so I kind of think that's that. And also, you know, Liz Truss is in many ways more of, I think, the conservative comfort zone than uh, Boris Johnson is. Because as you said, you know, she's trying very hard to paint herself as a massive Thatcherite. And in slight fairness to her as well, that's kind of what she's been doing since she got elected quite a long time ago now. She's always been a massive sort of like free market, libertarian kind of ASI, IEA wing of the party, which has been there for a very long time. So so yeah, that's kind of who she is. So I, I can see that just being, you know, sort of ball of warming soup uh, for conservatives who are a bit befuddled by Boris. Hmm. Also with us, writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Alex. Justin, David Lammy was in Washington. Um, I think he still is in Washington, uh, getting electoral advice from Democrat figures there. Keir Starmer joined him and Barack Obama virtually a few days ago for a fairly long and involved conversation on how to revive the fortunes of the centre-left. Do you think there are lessons from the states that are applicable? Um, I do. And I thought this story was particularly interesting. I mean, he's obviously his new shadow front secretary, Lammy, held these two hours of 
private talks with Obama, and it was about how centre-left parties can return to power. But what I thought was interesting was the mood music around the reports was very much this wasn't just a general networking thing. It was a very specific session on strategy and tactics, things which have been in perilously short supply in the Labour Party particularly, but in what we might more broadly call the sort of global left for most of the last decade. Mm. Um, Biden's win was interesting because it felt if you're of our sort of political persuasion, it felt like, if not a turning of the tide, then at least a kind of fire break after this five years where it just been one story after another from Brazil, Turkey, Poland, of these goons fomenting populism yeah. and the left being wrong-footed by it. Um, and I think in America, because they have all those problems in extremists that are plaguing democratic polities everywhere – saying, well, look, they managed to push back on it. What do you do on misinformation? You know, what do you do on social media? What do you do when you have to build a coalition of voters who may share economic ideas but have very different cultural views? Um, and so while I don't think it will map across entirely, I think there are clearly things that we can learn from there. Mm. And we now have newly minted Chancellor Olaf Scholz as well. Um Lamy is also meeting people over there about the UK threat to suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The government have appeared to back away from their threats in the last couple of weeks. Do you think US politicians do have influence over this? I think they do in the sense that they take it very seriously. And I slightly felt because you feel like people on the right in politics in this country broadly don't think a great deal about Northern Ireland. They assume that nobody else thinks about it a great deal either. And yet, you know, I mean, back in 2020, you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, if the UK violates its international agreements and Brexit undermines the Good Friday Accord, there will be absolutely no chance of a US-UK trade mm. agreement. <laughs> I mean, in diplomatic language, I mean, that's about as unvarnished as one can get. Yeah. Um, and it's an odd issue in America, and I think particularly at the moment, because it's viewed as a genuinely, it was a genuinely bipartisan achievement to the extent that America was involved in it. You know, we all know about Clinton being involved in the Good Friday Agreement, but that dialogue that was ongoing goes back to Jimmy Carter in the 70s. And in fairness, under George W. Bush, you know, his envoy, Richard Haas, was uh, involved in the decommissioning of weapons, later returned to chair into party talks. You know, there was, there was a serious level of commitment on each side. And mm-hmm. you know, in, even in 2019, under Trump, there was a House of Representatives resolution reaffirming support for the GFA. That was passed unanimously by both sides. Um, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head that both sides in America have agreed about for a very, very long time. Our special guest this week is Jolene Morm, barrister and director of the Good Law Project. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Pleasure as always. Joe, the government has heavily trailed what has become known as the Interpretation Bill, a piece of legislation that will allow them on a yearly basis to set aside judicial decisions they don't like. Um, As a former lawyer myself, I am baffled as to where this fits in a system in which statutory interpretation is informed by precedent. Um, do, Do you think this has been thought through? Is it a dead cat or is it more than that? Um. I think it has been thought through, but its objectives um, are not what most legal pundits think they are. Um, I mean, further to that point, it's just worth reflecting on the sequencing. So I know that this stuff was briefed out to uh, the Times several weeks in advance of Mm. them running it. Uh, They ran it, as I recall, on a Monday morning, and by... Um, Monday afternoon, Monday evening, the story had collapsed. Downing Street had said, um, we don't intend that the interpretation bill, or whatever it's going to be called, should do what um, the Times has reported it should do. Um, And I think that sequence is interesting because I think that government's real objective here is not to replicate a process that already exists whereby um, Parliament can overturn decisions of the courts that they don't like. Parliament's always had that ability. But it's instead to keep the sort of drumbeat about judicial overreach running. Mm. Um, My own view is that the government intends to do with the judiciary, indeed is doing with the judiciary, exactly Um, what it 
has done and is doing with the BBC. It means to keep um, them uh, fit and to remind them of their place in the constitutional hierarchy. So uh, judges um, fundamentally are being nudged to be more executive-minded than they would otherwise be. Mm. Um, Meanwhile, the Joint Committee on Human Rights has called on the government to amend proposals in the Judicial Review and Courts Bill. What's the gist of their objection? I mean, I went for a walk with a government minister shortly before this proposal was announced. And the way in which they described it to me was this. Uh, Judges need more flexibility in judicial review remedies because sometimes they're afraid of um, quashing Mm -hmm. an unlawful act because they're cognizant of the enormous chaos that would result from um, quashing that that act, particularly if the act in question is a um, a statutory instrument or the putting into um, the world of a scheme that's been um, delivered across the piece, affecting lots and lots of people. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I found that explanation reasonably plausible and at least for my own part and I'm probably being um, uncharacteristically complacent here (laughs) um, I didn't find uh, that bit of the outcome of the notionally independent inquiry into judicial review um, to be especially problematic. Very good much more from Joe later on in the program. Having to order an inquiry to tell you whether parties took place in your home, on what date, how many people were there, what happened and whether you attended, might be a clue for most people that you are partying a little too hard. Add to this the numbers of Omicron COVID infections doubling, according to data, every two or three days. The fact that Johnson is facing an open revolt from backbenchers over tighter restrictions, that his standards as advisor Lord Guite is reportedly considering his position over being misled about the Downing Street flat redecoration, some abysmally poor polling, hostility from the right-wing press, plus a new baby, and the season ahead is looking decidedly unjolly for the Prime Minister. Marie, boosters do not fully kick in for two to three weeks. We have just had reports of the first death from the Omicron variant, and yet government is putting all its eggs into the booster basket. Is this following the science, or is the Prime Minister compromised with his own party and knows further measures would be unpopular? Um, So I think this is a bit of a tricky one. So to start with, I feel quite conflicted about actually Boris Johnson uh, commenting on that first death from Omicron because we've not been given any other information. So, you know, was it someone who was, let's say, I don't know, like, you know, triple jab, 25 and healthy, or was it someone who was 95 and severely immunocompromised? Or I I feel like, you know, Mm. it is something that deserves a bit more context. But I mean, more widely, I don't know, and I'm not sure how popular that's going to make me with the listeners of this podcast, but I do think there's a slight ideological debate to be had here because, I think some people have been calling for much harsher measures or even for lockdowns potentially. But, you know, we, we've all been vaccinated now. Technically, this was meant to be the winter where actually vaccines were going to be enough. And obviously, I know that th- this new variant um, causes some problems. But, you know, I, I'm not really sure you could make the public buy in to further against sort of like harsher um, regulations because, because that was meant to be the entire deal of saying, actually, you know, get, get your two doses and now get your booster and then um, things will be fine. So I'm kind of hoping actually that, you know, that the government kind of decides not to go for a plan C or anything. But, you know, looking closer at Westminster. It's but, so, yeah. but, isn't, mm-hmm. but isn't the point, Marie, that um, a prime minister that doesn't have the authority to tell people do X, that his options are limited at the moment? Oh, so I would say yes and no. So yes, if you're looking, I think, from a Westminster point of view, because it, it is absolutely true that I think the Conservative backbenchers especially 
of, you know, largely very angry with him over any sort of restrictions, which to be clear, I don't agree with. I think Plan B was entirely warranted. But more widely, I think, you know, this has happened, I think, time and time again over the past year and a half of mm. saying, oh, well, and especially newspapers saying, oh, actually, you know, the public will never buy any restrictions or anything further, etc. And then the government announces something. And then you look at the polling in the sort of weeks after that. And if anything, the public is like, no, this is not going far enough. So I, I think you, you could probably get public buy-in. I'm just questioning whether it would be fair. Yeah. So on the flip side, let me put you the counter-argument. Um, Johnson responded to Beth Rigby's question about parties on Monday by saying that these questions were a distraction from the danger of the Omicron variant. Is there a suspicion that the government is actually playing up the danger to get out of trouble? Uh, yes, I would say that suspicion is definitely there in Westminster. I'm not entirely sure what I make of it myself, but I do think that quite a lot of people I've spoken to do believe that um, that that's partly why, for example, Plan B was uh, brought in a lot earlier than originally. So originally, I think, you know, there were no kind of immediate plans to bring in Plan B. And then all of a sudden, it was like, tomorrow, surprise. And again, I, I'm not really sure my position on is on it personally, but there's even been sort of, you know, a, a bit of a belief that even, yeah, Boris kind of talking about the first Omicron death today and saying, actually, that means that maybe Omicron is not milder at all. Um, looked a bit dodgy in the general context of, you know, are, are you actively trying to mm. frighten people? Um, Joe, last Wednesday at PMQs, Johnson promised to hand over all evidence of parties to the Metropolitan Police. And yet six hours later, the Met announced they wouldn't be looking into this because of lack of evidence. The Good Law Project has written to them about it. What is the issue here? Well, we think that the Met plainly ought to investigate uh, the parties at Downing Street. And there are a number of reasons why I say uh, they plainly ought to. The first is this, really. Our conception of the legitimacy of the rule of law rests upon the proposition that the law applies to all equally. Um, and the impression that people, I think, um, reasonably are forming is that this is a government that has um, booster-level immunity to uh, the criminal law. And that's a very, very troubling proposition, both from the perspective of the rule of law itself, but also from the perspective of um, executive accountability. Yeah. So it's important from that perspective. It's also important from a public health perspective, actually. I mean, I was listening to what Marie was saying, and I was thinking to myself, well, actually... Um, what we really need now is a slightly more um, multifaceted approach to um, Omicron. Boosters alone aren't going to do it. Really, government should be telling people not to socialise quite so much, to sort of cut down on the Christmas parties. And, and government's not doing that. And, you know, you may think, um, certainly I think, that the reason that government's not doing that is because it would be enormously politically embarrassing for government mm. to do it. So what you're then seeing is is a profound public health consequence. And again, I think, you know, that's a boil that needs to be lanced. I think the Met needs to take an interest. I mean, the actual reasons given by the Met for not investigating, uh, an absence of evidence and a policy of not looking at um, retrospective um, COVID breaches just don't stand up to even the vaguest examination. Mm. Anyone who's been into Downing Street or walked past the end of Downing Street know that the police have a list of everyone who goes in and everyone who goes out. There can't <laughs> be more closely monitored spaces in the country, frankly. If they want the evidence, they know where to get it. Um, you have to conclude that they don't want the evidence. And the retrospective breaches point, I mean, if anything, is even more bizarre. All crimes... Um, safer in Tom Cruise's splendid minority report um, are <laughs> retrospective crimes. Um, I'm not sure that the police has um, the power to gather ev evidence in relation to prospective crimes. So if, if, if we were prosecuting um, thought crimes, they may uh, have a point with their um, difficulty gathering evidence line of argument. But the reality is Parliament has said that COVID regulation breaches can be prosecuted for a period of, if I recall correctly, four years. And it's quite bizarre against that background for the Met to say, well, we're not going to look back 
one year, I just don't understand it. It really is difficult to avoid the conclusion that the thing that's driving the Mets in action has got nothing to do with evidence and nothing to do with retrospectivity. It's purely a desire to avoid um, a politically costly um, bust up yeah. uh, with number 10. This is what puzzles me in the whole affair, um, Joe. So you said that the photo of that quiz directly implicates the Prime Minister. Um, Johnson must have known there are plenty of witnesses. There, there will be photos and videos and CCTV. Why did he continue to deny any party ever took place? Well, he denies it because um, denying it is less costly than admitting it. If he admits um, that a party took place, it becomes very difficult um, for the Met to resist um, the judicial review that Good Law Project is planning to bring in relation to um, refusing to investigate and, you know, mm. possible criminality as the consequence. The thing about denying is that it's consistent with how Johnson's um, premiership has been run from day one. You deny all wrongdoing, um, even where it is as plain as the um, the hairdo on his head. Uh, I just I don't think we live in a country where the costs attached to wrongdoing are high enough to prevent it. Those costs ought to be administered um, in the courts, and we're doing our best on that front. They ought also to be administered in the body politic and. Um, vigorous whipping has meant that Tory MPs basically don't rebel often enough, certainly are not on stuff that matters. Uh, and we don't have um, a high-functioning fourth estate. Not enough of the media, um, hitherto at least, has cared enough about Johnson's breaches to deliver um, that function in a democracy that the fourth estate holds. Uh, so I think he's got away with it in the past as the TLDR, and he expects he'll continue to get away yeah. with it presently and in the future. Uh, meanwhile, Justin, after weeks of being told that this is a Westminster Village story and that the government is concentrating on delivering the people's priorities, Johnson's numbers are collapsing like a cement souffle. Are we finally seeing this government's arrogance catch up with it? Uh, tentatively, it feels like we are. I mean, there was a Times radio poll over the weekend that was absolutely damning, uh, not just in terms of the numbers, which, you know, were pretty much tracked out in all the other polls. But what was more interesting was the editorialising around it from the polls. They said, you know, the public's opinion of Johnson is collapsing. Four in 10 Tory voters from 2019 now say the government's not fit for office. Uh, they described them as mind-blowing numbers. We've not seen a poll this damning for a long, long time. Four in 10 Tory voters? Yeah. Think that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Tory votes, I think it's six in 10 in the wider electorate and then four in 10 um, amongst Conservative voters, particularly low numbers amongst first time Tory voters from last time as well. So um, it feels like they said, you know, they're reaching maybe that critical mass where they can't keep absorbing damaging revelations. But there was also, I thought today, a really interesting piece from Shropshire in the Daily Telegraph of all places where they were detailing the shall we say, somewhat suboptimal response that Tories were receiving on the doorstep there. Mm. And what it actually made me think of, and it sounded very close to, was the response that Labour canvassers got throughout the Corbyn era in the Red Wall. People saying, I voted for you all my life. My issue is not with you as a constituency MP, but I cannot vote for the guy at the top. And this is the problem for a party of building that party in the image of one personality, which the Conservatives have done over the last five years. When that person's winning and is popular, everyone benefits. And you saw that at the last election where they took seats over the line that they maybe wouldn't have done otherwise. But when the mood turns on them, the fish rots from the head down. Hmm. There was another survey uh, by Opinion which asked people to sort of rank um, COVID-19 scandals, as it were. And the Downing Street Party comfortably topped the list with 51% compared to 28% for the Cummings trip and 21% for the Hancock affair. We have to price in a little bit of novelty, I guess, to the party um, story. But why do you think it has cut through so directly 
I find this so fascinating. I mean, this question of why and how certain events finally tip the balance. You know, we saw that with Barnard Castle. You know, that was a long, long way down the list of shifty things that Dominic Cummings had been involved in. And yet that was the one that um, <laughs> that stuck. Um, you know, great scheme of things, maybe not such a big thing. But what it always is the case is that it seems indicative of something bigger. And specifically the common thread with all these stories seems to be that it seems to cut against a sense of fair play. I also feel like there's a limit to how far you can take people for idiots. I mean, Ros Taylor made this point on the bunker start your week yesterday that the libertarian Tories were backing the wrong horse. My own feeling is that there's the Tories have always overplayed their hand on Johnson. He's not as much of a winner as they think he is. His support is not as deep as they think it is. You know, he won the mayoralty in London while claiming very little of the city itself. He won that on the suburbs and the outer ring. He was gifted an appalling opposition by Corbyn that I think any Conservative candidate would have won against. Yet they've convinced themselves that he's a dead cert winner. And I just don't think he is. And I think really what you're seeing here with a combination of circumstance and also Starmer knocking the Labour Party into some sort of shape is that he's actually being tested for the first time and is found extremely wanting. And I think the support he's always had is possibly far softer and also far more conditional than they realise. Mm. Marie, you're a denizen of the Westminster village. What's the mood like amongst Tory MPs? I mean, Labour are now leading by 9% in one poll and by you know a, a, a decent chunk in most polls. Uh, what, what are you hearing? Are the letters beginning to trickle into the 1922 committee? So I was going to say first, I think the even more interesting stats, I think that's a poll that came out today. So Labour currently, well, Keir Starmer currently has, I think, the biggest lead um, against Boris Johnson on who makes the best leader, which is usually the most indicative thing of who would win an election mm. in 14 years. 14. So, so yeah, wow. it's fair to say the numbers are not great for the Conservative Party at the moment. Um, I mean, you know, it, it will surprise you to hear, I'm sure, that the mood is not tremendous. I don't think Conservative MPs are currently thrilled <laughs> um, by, by what's going on. Um, but that being said, and that's kind of, so I was um, writing my column on this today, actually. I think the, the, the slight problem is that, yes, obviously, they're, they're not happy at all with Boris Johnson, but also... I don't think there's going to be a leadership contest anytime soon because fundamentally, I think that Parliamentary Conservative Party doesn't really know what it is at the moment because um, the 2019 intake was so large that so many people got elected. Mm. Um, and so many of these people are still relatively unknown, I would say. And even the 2017 ones, you know, to an, to an extent, you mostly know about their Brexit stuff, but not about much more. So I think the problem is if you're, let's say, someone who wants to run for leader you'd only really trigger a contest if you were reasonably certain you could win it. And I'm not sure any faction can claim to do that at the moment, because again, it's not really clear which way the Conservative Party falls on sort of anything apart from obviously Brexit and and COVID, but even stuff, you know, big state, small state, levelling up. So I think that everyone kind of collectively has cold feet. So they're not happy, but I think Boris is still relatively safe, actually. Joe, there's also the small matter of the North Shropshire by-election, as Justin mentioned, which is a seat vacated by Owen Patterson during the last scandal um, that engulfed the Tory party, which feels like a year ago, but it was only a couple of weeks. It was considered a safe seat, but internal Lib Dem polling puts them in within a point of the Tory candidate. Could Johnson take the damage of losing, or even coming close to losing, that seat right now? Um... I mean, it, it would be an extraordinary result. Uh, and the bookies now have the Lib Dems, uh, once rank outsiders, as relatively hot favourites, actually, to take it. Um, I mean, speaking for myself, uh, as a man who thinks the Conservative Party has had quite a long time in government and it would be good to have a, a change... Um, I rather hope they stick with Johnson because I think he's very, very damaged goods. I don't think people um, will forget how they now feel about him. I mean, the most interesting thing I've read about Johnson actually in recent times was a piece in the Atlantic, and it was widely criticised um, as being sort of excessively deferential towards him. But a bit like sort of Andrew Marr's interviews sometimes. If you really read carefully, there's quite a lot there to learn. And what I learned from it was um, Johnson's 
instinctive understanding that what people really want from politicians in a very complicated world is not answers because they find it impossible to assess whether those answers are right or wrong, Mm. but instead they want stories. And I think hitherto the stories that Johnson has given the electorate have been stories that the electorate has found compelling. Um, Starmer hasn't realised that what the electorate wants is stories and that that was going to continue to serve Johnson well. But I'm not sure how that skill that um, that Johnson has plays out when people um, have grown deeply distrustful of the storyteller. Uh, and I, I can see him, um, I couldn't imagine saying this in early 2020, I can see him leading the Conservative Party to quite a significant defeat. Mm. Um, Justin, on top of everything, Carrie has given birth to another member of the Johnson progeny. Some have unkindly suggested much as a squid shoots out ink. Um, How mean. We wish baby and mother all the very best. The media seem to pretty much ignore the happy event this time round. But will the emotional impact and sleeplessness actually add to the general Downing Street chaos right now? Uh, This is purely speculation on my part, but I don't imagine that Johnson is the kind of man who has ever allowed the business of actual parenting to much impede on his day-to-day life. But that's a fair point, but we also know that Carrie and Carrie's advice is very important to him. It is. I I mean, I always feel this gets slightly talked up by people for whom it's more convenient to, you know, blame the time-worn archetype of the scheming woman rather than the man who is ultimately responsible for this stuff. I mean, I should say physically, I thought that Prime Minister's questions last week, he looked absolutely wretched physically. Um, Mm -hmm. But then also so much of his appearance is performatively terrible that it's sometimes hard to tell, you know, is he in the grips of physical collapse or has he just spent 20 minutes backstage flamming up the outfit? So it's Les Patterson (laughs) style. It's uh, it's very, very hard to tell. Okay, Marie, final question. A very quick answer. Will he make it to the next election? Uh, Almost certainly not. I would say nine out of 10 chances that no. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. It is extraordinary to discover that the Good Law Project was only set up in early 2019. It seems such a long-standing, permanent and essential part of our polity. It was set up by Barrister Jolian Maugham, described by The Spectator as the Rumple of Remainers, which sounds terrific, despite being intended as shade, I'm sure. Its first chart-topping success was the case over the unlawful prorogation of Parliament, and since then, the hits have kept on coming. Joe, what success has the Good Law Project had in 2021? What would you say are your two or three biggest victories? Well, we we work in incredibly toxic spaces um, and uh, difficult politically, incredibly difficult to litigate right in the government's face at the time that the government is going after the judges. Um, So they're hard cases to win. And I think my first sort of principal achievement for 2021 would be the fact that we've had four cases uh, come to court for a substantive determination and we've won all four. I mean, that is in itself um, pretty extraordinary. 
Uh, we've grown a lot. Um, so at the start of the year, I think we had about eight employees. We've now got more than 20, and we're expecting to have in the mid-40s by the end of next year. That's been very challenging, actually, because um, doing organizational development at the same time as uh, getting a lot done for the external world is uh, is incredibly <laughs> challenging. I think for me, the really important things actually are keeping or generating a sense amongst the public at large of Good Law Project as being an organization that is principally interested in impact, not mm-hmm. in growth, and that continues to live its values of truthfulness and bravery. I think those are the things that will sustain us when we have difficult moments. Um, and they're increasingly difficult to do as the organization emerges from a conception in my head into um, an actual fully-fledged living and breathing medium-sized not-for-profit. Joe, on that, before we talk more about specific cases, you have very strict case selection criteria and you have very uh, uh, accountable and direct and straightforward policies and very, very transparent funding. Is your mere existence, in a way, the values you were talking about, a challenge to more traditional think tanks and lobbying organizations who tend to operate in obscurity. Does this transparency bring with it problems as well, though? I mean, there are all sorts of odd features arising from how Good Law Project has set itself up and what it does. So we decided very early on that we didn't want to be a charity, uh, in large part because we didn't trust the regulator Um, And what that's meant on the downside is that we don't get gift aid when people give us money. So that um, reduces the money, uh, the cash value of gifts that are made to us. It also makes it much more difficult for us to attract institutional funding because most um, foundations only give to charities. Mm -hmm. But against that, um, it's enabled us to speak with... um, an authenticity, a clarity, I think that is very, very rare in our space. And I think that people um, appreciate the authenticity of voice. They appreciate the clarity. They appreciate the straight talking, actually, that comes from having more than 30,000 people giving you money every month, Hmm. Uh, much more than they appreciate the sort of 25% extra um, uh, that their gift would give. Um, where we are charity. I mean, you say kindly that we have very clear case selection criteria. Um, Certainly, there are cases that it's clearly right for us to bring and cases that it's clearly wrong for us to bring. But actually, one of the really big challenges that we have is that because we're not a charity, we don't have charitable objects, which means that we have enormous freedom as to what to do with the resources that um, people are giving to us. Mm. Um, And that's uh, a bit of a problem, actually, in a way. It's a good problem, but it's still a problem. You don't want your organization to be one that centralizes power and uses it at the whim of a mercurial founder. You need to find ways to remain accountable. You need to find ways to redistribute that power. And that's a real challenge. It's one of the many things, actually, that we've been wrestling with alongside organizational growth. We're going to keep doing um, work around that. But I, you know, I want people to keep us honest. I want us to exhibit the values that we try and hold other people to. Do you ever worry that um, if uh, Keir Starmer was uh, elected tomorrow and we had a Labour government and he still wanted to bring scrutiny to what the government was doing with its powers, suddenly the funding would dry up because you've sort of aligned yourself with a particular demographic who now would balk at the uh, notion that you're applying that scrutiny to a Labour government. I would put that in my basket of nice problems to have. I mean, there's work that we do alongside uh, governance that I think people attach value to. So we do a lot of work 
with communities who are being um, particularly screwed over. Uh, we do environmental work. We're building a, a model that will enable us to do for um, bad capital mm-hmm. what we do for bad government. So we've got plenty of inflection points uh, should we find ourselves in that um, amazing world. I'm a little sceptical um, that should we have a Labour government, uh, the governance issues that uh, the Tories have brought to light will just disappear. I think the way in which uh, democracy works uh, these days is, in the UK at least, that it's something of a ratchet. I think it's quite difficult actually um, to roll back declines in governance standards. Um, I very much hope uh, we have a Labour government and I very much hope I'm proved wrong, um, but I'm not um, worrying about it from an organisational mm. perspective. You uh, wrote a thread recently about the government threatening MPs, its own MPs, with a loss of constituency funding if they didn't back it on a particular issue. Um why is that a problem? Just tell us a little bit about the sort of pork barrelling aspect of it and and why it's damaging. It's a profound challenge to our conception of what our constitution is because the way in which um, we think about our constitution is that parliament is supreme and it's um, legitimate for Parliament to, to be supreme. By supreme, I mean it has absolute mm-hmm. power, sort of unparalleled in any other um, democracy in the world, to do whatever it wants. That's how we conceive of Parliament. And we, we give it that power, uh, this is our conception at least collectively, because it has a mandate from uh, the people. And you know, there are lots of criticisms one could make of that conception of parliamentary democracy, but it's the conception that we have. And the problem with threatening MPs who don't do what the executive, what the government wants them to do with a withdrawal of public money from their constituencies is that it transfers the power that should rest with people democratically accountable to their constituents to uh, an executive that might be quite far removed from the parliamentary party. Mm -hmm. So we all remember how Dominic Cummings acted when he was in number 10. He didn't care uh, about anything or anybody. I mean, I remember uh, us... Uh, contemplating judicial review proceedings in relation to the um, £100 billion moonshot that was being talked about um, back in the summer uh, of this year. And what really troubled me about it was the notion that a project that was widely rumoured to have been Cummings's baby might saddle £100 billion of debt around the necks of all of our children um, without any democratic mandate. And so fundamentally, when threats like that are issued against MPs, it causes the power that MPs should hold to leech into the executive. And there's no proper mandate for that in our Mm. uh, conception of our constitution. There's also a host of problematic issues with home office policies and the Nationality and Borders Bill that is currently on its way through Parliament, I think you're uh, mounting a challenge against one aspect of it. There's been a freedom from torture challenge in the administrative court uh, on the Home Office policy of pushing back migrant boats in the channel. Do you ever think that there's a danger immigration will become the crowbar government uses to extricate the UK from a human rights convention? Do you ever balance the the danger that they might point to people like the Goodlow Project and say, look what these do-gooder lawyers are, they're not letting us deport the people we want to deport, and that actually that has the capacity to generate support for um, inhuman policies? I mean, the answer to your question actually is that we do regulate our conduct in that space. We are mindful of the attack that government 
so often launches against, in inverted commas, progressive lefty lawyers, um, that they're thwarting um, the people's will that there be uh, fewer um, refugees. Uh, And we leave that space for others, not because we don't care about it, but because we see the possibility of us working in that space, uh, damaging work that we do elsewhere. Others Mm. do work in that space, but no one else works in the space in which we work in. So fundamentally, we do make a a, a sort of political assessment Mm. and and we do leave that space alone. That's interesting. Um, I'll ask you one final question. When you started down this road, I remember reading an interview where you said that legal colleagues warned you you were about to blow up your lucrative tax practice to smithereens. Um, whether, were they right? Um, do you ever have moments of regret? Um, they were right, and I don't have moments of regret. You know, my income now uh, is a small fraction of what I would have been earning had I remained a uh, tax silk. But, you know, when we die, um, the thing that we want um, written on our headstone is not he left a large estate, but <laughs> we want people to think that we've lived lives of value. We want ourselves to feel that we've lived lives of value. And actually, I think that if you uh, return to a lifestyle that you once found yourself able to live before you reap uh, the rewards that a successful legal practice can deliver, you discover that actually it's not really any way, um, in any meaningful way, uh, a less livable existence than the one that you had when you had much more money. I just don't really care about that stuff. I have one life. I want to spend it doing stuff that feels meaningful. Um, Doing stuff that feels meaningful makes me much, much happier than earning a lot of money. Uh, They were right. I don't regret it. Is wanting happiness the road to depression? Some research suggests that the way we construct our positive outlook is key to achieving better results. Expecting high levels of happiness can actually lead to disappointment. So there is such a thing as toxic positivity. Marie, where are you in terms of responses to cheer up love? It might never happen. Um, So what I will say is that Basically, A, I'm French, and B, recently there was a very funny uh, fake study in the French equivalent of The Onion that was like, oh, you know, big exclusive study. We have put five people, five French people in this blank space together in a room for six months, and the one thing they have to do is not complain. Now, we will see if these five French people <laughs> will be able to, you know, yeah. So, yes, that's kind of my answer to that, really. I just, I, I think... I, I, you know, I, I do think some positivity is obviously good, but only as long as um, on the other side of that, you also get to just whinge quite a lot because I think whinging is very good. <laughs> Justin, the the crux of this thing is uh, valuing happiness versus positivity. What's the difference between happiness and positivity? Do you think? I think for me, it's that one's one is internal and one is external. So happiness is something closer to contentment and something which manifests in you regardless of other people and what's going on there positivity is more something that you project outwards Ah. primarily to impact on other people so in my own case I'm broadly very happy I'm very content I have a very very simple life with very low expectations of everything um but conversely i don't i don't think i project out a huge amount of positivity so for the most part and and the best example of that was during lockdown my next door neighbor is this incredibly stoic polish man and in the early days of lockdown we were standing on the back patio we were talking about you know the state of the world and he'd been telling me about, you know, his grandfather was like a partisan when he was 14. He was in a concentration camp, then a Russian camp, and he was shooting at Nazis. And, and his take was he just said, look, the sun's coming up and we're not getting shot at. Life's okay. And I think that, that's, that for me is kind of the optimum state you should try and be in the whole time. Like, is the sun coming up? 
is anyone shooting you? <laughs> if the answer is yes and no, you're okay. It's you can a be pretty you low bar. I think we can do better. Just to... <laughs> I, I just admire that kind of uh, the the, po- the Polish uh, stoicism. I thought we could all learn from. Joe, the flip side of this is you cannot have failed to notice what I call performative cynicism on social media. Anything you post that's basically a positive news story is always greeted with, oh, but nothing will ever change. Is that a helpful mantra? It isn't a helpful mantra, actually. I I, I do think that what it shows um, often is a degree of self-loathing, actually, that people who... Uh, stand on the sidelines and seek to undermine the efforts, be they good or bad, be they flawed or successful, Mm. of others, are fundamentally expressing a disappointment with themselves for not trying to do anything to create the world that they too would like to see. You know, I I remember um, Richard Murphy when tax avoidance was a big thing and every morning he'd get up and he'd write sort of three or four blogs on tax policy and sometimes they were good but um very often they were they were marked including by all of my colleagues then at the tax bar and i thought to myself you know richard is the the he's harry truman's the man in the arena you know he's getting stuck in he's trying to create something he's trying to make things better that effort is a an effort that's a heroic effort even Mm. where um, his attempts are misplaced. Yes, I think um, I did a, a big study for a corporate client on all things social media, including virality and sort of rate of engagement. And what what became quite clear was that social media is a negative space, effectively. You don't exist until you say something. And people who don't have the capacity or the courage, I guess, to say something original, to say something of their own, to say something that can be shot down, um, can only exist by criticizing what others have said. Um, Marie, I did an interview with David Robson for a bunker daily, which is out Wednesday, I think, uh, tomorrow, uh, on his new book, The Expectation Effect. And there is basically a proven placebo or nocebo effect to expecting good or bad things to happen. I mean, to the extraordinary effect that positive people are measurably healthier, age more slowly, and live longer. Um, What are the chances of you getting over your Frenchness and finding the right balance? (laughs) Uh, Well, so actually, I was going to slightly um, contradict myself there. So I am probably the single most optimistic person who's ever lived. And actually, while you were um, asking that question, I was trying to think about what is the single most ludicrous of like, you know, optimistic thought I've had. And I think I remember, so so (laughs) this is going to sound insane and I stand by it entirely. So basically, uh, 2016, 23rd of June, obviously a very happy night for everyone. Um, And so my my boss had invited me to watch uh, the referendum at the Grout Show and so I basically spent a week building this thing in my head, right? Where I was that, okay, so I'm going to be at the Grouch Show, surrounded by famous people. <laughs> Romain is going to win by a huge margin. Somehow Jude Law is going to be there because I've seen Jude Law at the Grouch Show before. And then in the extreme joy of Romain winning, I'm going to end up shagging Jude Law. And I literally, I walked into the Grouch Show that night being like, this is the night I have sex with Jude Law. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously um, it, <laughs> it didn't quite happen. Um, but yeah, not but, but, even sympathy sex with Jude Law. Jude Law not was in even fact commiseration, not there. commiseration sex. I know you'd think, right? But yeah, Jude, <laughs> if you're listening, it's not too late. Um, Justin, how about the that don't impress me much segment of the demographic, indifference and apathy as a way of either insulating yourself emotionally or seeming clever and switched on. I think more than a way of seeming clever, I think very much it's a kind of security mechanism yeah. and it allows you to never fully back something and so never be confronted with the possibility of disappointment or rejection in your cultural or ideological choices. Um, I think it was something which, and I've seen this in a lot of the work I've done, you know, culturally people have complained a lot about among millennials that whereas Gen X was very earnestly committed to specific 
cultures or scenes or ideologies. Millennials often seem far more non-committal. Yeah, they used a lot of ironic detachment um, and everything was a bit, you know, whatever. But I think that was probably a direct consequence of them being the first generation for whom everything was available at once online and they were just being fire-hosed with options constantly. And that in itself can create a real sense of cultural paralysis. By Mm. contrast, I think from what I've seen with people I work with and the work I've done, I think Gen Z are far more adept at curating those choices. And so we're seeing a real return of that kind of enthusiast culture again. So in terms of the pendulum swinging back, I think we're probably going to see a more sort of earnest, heartfelt culture in the ascendance. I long for it. Um, Joe, finally, as lawyers, we are trained to expect the worst outcome and manage the expectations of those around us. If you think... If you think uh, your client's case has 60% chance of success, you tell them it has 30. Um, how do we shed that so we can be less Debbie Downer in our uh, non-legal life now? Well, uh, most of us lawyers are um, schizophrenic. So we have uh, a persona that we inhabit as lawyers that obsesses uh, in the writing of wills, for example, with the simultaneous loss of large numbers of uh, extended family members so that we can address um, who then gets the the, the bounty. Mm. But in our real lives, we are the people that our parents made us. Uh, we all have, I think, those in our lives who we look at with enormous admiration and maybe some of us are, are are those persons ourselves i mean i was listening with interest of course to marie who um are always comfortable in their own skin always relaxed um, not many of them become lawyers <laughs> it, it's fair <laughs> to say most of them do uh, productive uh, things with their lives and 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 are happier in in consequence. There's something special about winter in Colorado. The snow is deeper. Adventures feel bigger, and our natural beauty inspires every traveler. From snow-covered mountains and trails to unique cities and towns, new discoveries lie around every bend and new memories around every corner. No matter the place, no matter the day, everything shines a little brighter. Come to Colorado. Come to life. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, and miscellaneous activities that have acted as the ejector seat out of the nose-diving, flaming aircraft that is currently the word of politics? Justin. Uh, I've recently started boxing training. Um with no, no intention to actually get in the ring and fight anyone. You know, I'm going to get killed if I do that. But uh, I've started doing it as a fitness thing, and it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, both in terms of the required level of fitness and also the shocking level of technicality. And it's making me look at anyone who can actually box properly with an incredible level of newfound respect, because I am so far off that but it is absolutely beasting me as a new hobby, and I really, really love it. That's Justin Quirk there on the way to buff. (laughs) Marie, how about you? Oh, so before I get to mine, I'd just say quickly on boxing, I did it for a bit as well, and I also nearly died. So what I'd recommend is actually boxing is is fundamentally dancing. If you think of it as choreography and dancing, then your brain will find it easier to remember the different moves in different order and stuff. And our brains may be different, but that massively helped me, weirdly. No, no, I, I completely agree with that because it is all about linking up sequences of movements. The thing you haven't factored in is that I am a legitimately terrible dancer with almost no sense of natural <laughs> rhythm. So, uh, you know, I, I see where you're coming from, but it is of no help whatsoever. <laughs> so so how about you, Murray? What have you been watching or reading? Or- oh, yeah, I've been watching Only Murders in the Building, which is on Disney+, Plus, and it is so good. So it's only 10 episodes. It's only one season is out. Um, and it's this two retired guys and this one millennial woman who all live in this really fancy uh, building in New York. Uh, 
someone was murdered there, all three basically happened to be fans of true crime podcasts and so decide to investigate the murder themselves. And it is, I would genuinely say, one of the best seasons of a TV series I've ever watched in my entire life. It's absolutely flawless. It's funny. It's pacey. The crime bit is fun. It's really charming. So yeah, only murders in the building. I have to say, I I, I saw you waxing lyrical about it on Twitter and it jumped to the top of my <laughs> to watch yes. list. Um, Joe, how about you? Well, rather like Justin, I've taken to exercise um, the splendidly named Amandine Babin comes to the house um, twice a week early in the morning and um, she and I together do, this is going to have a disappointing ending this sentence, I'm afraid, uh, yoga. That that helps. Um, I mean, it's slightly orcs to say actually, but in truth, um, when I need to decompress, I try and find um, time to spend with my wife, who um, whose company I continue to find, you know, a joy after um, fifteen years or however long it is. I'm not sure how you replicate that, but um, my advice would be marry well. Um, I mean, I'm also sort of married well. Um, but uh, after last week's culture bunker, in which Nigella Lawson sung the praises of Izakaya, a book by Tim Anderson, which is recipes from the Japanese drinking dens, um, I have acquired a copy and I have been making ham and cheese katsu milfe, <laughs> um, mackerel scotch eggs and chicken curry spaghetti. Um, I'll say no more. Buy the book. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Buff Justin Quirk. Thank you, equally Buff Alex. <laughs> to Chatty Marie Lecon. Thanks for having me. And to our very special guest, Joe Moore. Thank you, Alex. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right there in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Back us, get a shout-out at the end of the podcast, and here are some now. Hello, and many thanks from me to Rupert Pottier, Andre Dandilly, and Duncan Smith, not that Duncan Smith. Best wishes from me to Kira Murphy, Phil Wilkinson, and Fatima. And many thanks from me to Donald Moore, Elegant Chaos, we bet you like the Culture Bunker, and Alexandra McCallum. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all and the three friends you just recommended this to next time. Bunker was presented by Alex Andreev, produced by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofronovich. An audio production was from me, Robin Lee. Theme music is by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.